0: This is the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. Your hosts, Sam Harris and Nicholas Farik, digest the most interesting, informative, and topical books, giving you their biggest insights. We expose different perspectives and tools to look at the world to make you wiser than yesterday.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ninth episode of the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. I'm Nico, I'm joined by my co-host Sam, and today we're discussing the book Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Taleb, which was, as people call it, a very smart book, and I can't say that I disagree with that, it's definitely a smart book. And so the main premise is that randomness, chance, and luck influence our lives and our work more than we realize. Mainly because of hindsight bias and survivorship bias, we tend to forget people and things that fail, and we remember what succeeds and then afterwards we create reasons to make their success even even bigger than it was although it was actually random mm. uh, mild success can be explainable by skill and hard work and but wild success is usually mostly attributable to variance and luck anything you add sam
0: yeah i think you've kind of covered it it's just we we're just not aware of how much randomness exists and people like to explain success to their own behaviors so like stock traders and these kind of people think that they're much better than other people that are doing stuff, and they expect that all of their results are just brilliant. And this can actually lead them to have like massive failures because they get like so caught up in how good they are, when actually it's just statistics of the market. If you're just, if you have this money over the seven year period, you're probably going to do mm-hmm. quite well if you've got some knowledge of what's going on, and then you're not ready mm-hmm. for the random events that come that will completely sort of knock you off, and you kind of get fooled by just how things are.
1: Did you like the fact that it talked a lot about trading in the stock market?
0: No. I mean, I really liked, they, they could have just had like one or two examples. It didn't need to constantly be about that. But it, it felt like it was a book more for trading almost that happens to, if you think about it, be relevant in the rest of life rather than a book about life that happens to be relevant for trading as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's the impression I had as well. So he says that a lot of the examples he's, he would be using in a book and he used in a book or about trading, as suppose he's a trader mm. himself. And I think it's, all the theories are very much applicable to trading and very well ap- applicable, but it's true. I mean, I, I look into investing quite a lot. I do quite a lot of research and I'm quite involved. And so I, I actually really like the fact that I talked a lot about that stuff mm. because it made me realize some, some mistakes in my thinking, which were relevant and, and, and useful. And so, yeah, but I, I can imagine if you're not involved in the stock market at all, if you don't look at stocks or, or, or funds, etc. cetera. Um, yeah,
0: or if you just like have a pension and do a bit of trading, it wouldn't be that relevant to you kind of thing. Even though I think it would be if you, the general
1: concept. Yeah, I mean, the general concept is definitely useful. But the examples, I think it, it's going to resonate most if you already know something about trading and stocks and the markets. Mm. So yeah, let's, let's go into some of the interesting things that you learned.
0: Me telling me the interesting things?
1: <laughs> what stuck to your mind? What do you still remember from reading the book?
0: I think what stuck with me is I really liked some of the concepts of life is sort of nonlinear. And you kind of think that, okay, if I'm always going to make kind of 10% this year doing this one behavior, I should do that. And perhaps you should maybe optimize for the random things that you're not expecting When you're just optimizing for the normal behaviors, you're not expecting the really big things to happen. So he talks about how he trades and when things go really wrong and different, that's sort of what he's waiting for. And yeah, there's a really nice way of explaining this that I haven't really like summarized. (laughs) But do you know which bits I'm talking about?
1: I think if I understand you well, he says that most people in the markets make a bit of money uh, every year, small bits of money every year. But the problem is that they don't take into account the risks that they take while making that amount of money. And so whenever a very large black swan event, as he calls it, occurs, they get wiped out, as they call it. They lose all the gains that they made. And there are some very uh, small minority of traders actually do the opposite. They lose a bit of money when things are normal, but they stand to make a lot of money when things... Uh, eventually go wrong Mm. and that just keeps on happening
0: yeah you can think of this analogy as like entrepreneurs as in if you want to just make money every year you have a job and each year you'll make money you'll be okay if you want to make lots of money you need to become an entrepreneur and statistically nine out of ten times you will fail but then you'll become a millionaire and you need to kind of be in that sort of potential to actually for it to go really big even though statistically like it won't always do that well each time which I thought was really nice.
1: Some of the concepts I'd like to overlook is, for example, whenever we make a choice, we usually tend to assess the quality of that choice by the result. And because of randomness, that actually is not the right way of looking at things. To give you one example, I'm an avid video game player. And one of the games I used to play is called Hearthstone. And Hearthstone is like a card game, which is computer-based. So you play it on your computer or your phone. And there's quite a lot of RNG in that game. And so there's a lot of randomness in it. And so quite often, you can make the correct choice and the best choice, which actually leads to you losing the game. And so what the book says is that, yeah, the correct choice could potentially be the, the worst one in that case in, in retrospect, in hindsight. And that's something that you, you, you should try and, and avoid. I think another way to explain this is, is playing poker. Let's say you're playing poker and you're very good at reading the other person and you get two aces and your opponent gets, if you're very good at reading him, gets a very shit hand like a two and a seven. The correct thing for you to do would be to put him or yourself all in and make sure that your opponent calls. But in retrospect, when suddenly, you know, two two sevens and a two get flopped, you might lose the hand. And although you made the right decision, it resulted in you losing. But that doesn't mean that that was a bad decision. It was still the correct one and the one you should have made.
0: Yeah, definitely. And he kind of talks about stoicism and he's got a nice quote, like heroes are heroes because they are heroic in behavior, not because they won or lost. And so you kind of need to go through your day doing kind of the right things, even though it won't always give you the right result. But in the long term, it will probably.
1: (laughs) Hopefully. Yeah, I think uh, one of the super interesting concepts there is one of alternate realities. I found that very, very interesting and super relevant. And so the concept of alternate realities is that uh, whenever you take a decision or whenever you choose a certain path in life, you can think about it as, okay, if I had done this, let's say a thousand times, what would have happened in most of the cases? And there, for example, he wants to make a distinction between people that were really successful out of pure luck and other that were very successful or mildly successful, let's put it that way, but that didn't rely on luck at all. Mm. For example, for some reason in the book, he refers quite often to dentists. He seems to like dentists pretty much. But if you decide to become a dentist, you will do fairly well. You'll make a good amount of money and the variability of the money that you make will be relatively low the main variability will be in whether you, you know, live somewhere in a poor neighborhood or somewhere in a very, very rich neighborhood. And if you live the life of a dentist, let's say uh, a thousand times, you will on average make, I don't know, somewhere between one million and ten million million, something like that. And he then compares that to a stock trader. Most stock traders actually lose money and go completely bankrupt and switch careers. And so if you, become a stock trader for a thousand times if you analyze a thousand alternate realities in which you become a stock trader it's it's possible that in 900 of them you lose all of your money and you have to go you know work at starbucks and in 90 of the remaining ones you make some money and uh, you become a millionaire and then in 10 of the thousands uh, realities you make a lot of money and you come you become like you you earn like 50 to 100 million dollars mm-hmm. and for the the author there's a big difference in between these passive lives and that's why the concept of alternate realities is irrelevant we tend to look up to the people that earn a lot of money without taking into account the risks the risks they took and the alternate realities that have could have resulted in them being bankrupt yeah. or not successful at all
0: like if you use Etoro, the social trading, it's constantly sort of saying, "Hey, this guy he spent the last three years making like this much money," and you're like, "Yeah, but what about like the millions of people on your platform?" And like, easily someone's going to have done that. Like, <laughs> it's not because necessarily they're a genius kind of thing. What well, I think what's quite interesting, is if you think about like sports, I mean, I interviewed an Olympian, like gold medal, a few weeks ago, and asked him, like, "Okay, if it, if he if he'd done that race like ten times, how many times would he have won it?" And he was like, "Yeah, probably not, like not all of them." Because he he genuinely knew that he wasn't always like the fittest and the strongest and but you know he is like now a gold medal winner he's like the guy that won the glory and he you know he gives speeches about like what it is to be a winner (laughs) even though he knows that like actually it could have not happened though he didn't always win all like the the events getting up to it and stuff and so we like respect all these people who are amazing and actually maybe they're not necessarily the best person I mean sure like Usain Bolt was like okay Mm -hmm. he was definitely just like a cut above and he just always wins because so ridiculously fast, but a lot of the gold medal winners out there kind of just happened to be on the day. Like someone else was a bit sick or like someone else just missed a step kind of thing. And they just happened to run it in the race perfectly. And, and so they won kind of thing. And it sort of changes yeah. what you sort of perceive
1: of as like as greatness and stuff. I think the definition of the best at something is not necessarily the one that wins the most important race or that receives the gold Olympic medal, mm. but it's more accurate if it is the one that wins most of the times yeah right and the problem with the olympic games is that although there are a few rounds i mean you have the like you have like yeah a few a, a few rounds where people get cut uh um, until you get to the finals yeah but there's like the sample size of races is not large enough to be able to say with a very high degree of of yeah. uh, statistical relevance that's that's the winner is actually the one that is best
0: exactly whereas like if you think of like tennis like the world number 1 is kind of the guy that's been doing the best over the season kind of thing whereas the person that happens to win Wimbledon this year isn't necessarily the best tennis player.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this is actually what makes sports interesting. Mm.
0: Yeah. That's why like an underdog can come and win the like the Rugby World Cup and you're like, fuck, this is going to be amazing even though technically they're not the best team because New Zealand's just like full of amazing people and then if you're a guy come and like beat them and like it could happen and it's amazing.
1: Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize this but actually randomness is what makes sports specifically enjoyable and watching mm. Because you never know what's going to happen. Even if there's a 1% chance, the moment that, you know, the big underdog beats the, the champion, these are the most memorable events.
0: Definitely. Well, now we know this. Good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> one of the concepts I, I really enjoyed and I found really interesting was the one of the Monte Carlo simulator. And so in our discussion we just had, we discussed, you know, if you run the life of a trader or the life of a dentist a thousand times, you know, these are the most likely outcomes, et cetera. And that is actually um, the kind of simulations that a Monte Carlo machine or calculator can do. And so the author writes that when he was young, he actually fell in love with the concept of the Monte Carlo simulator and he used it to his advantage to, to see, okay, how, if I run this experiment or this situation X number of times, what are the most likely outcomes? And for me, it actually, it was a very, very interesting way of, of, of thinking about the world. And I'm actually interested in using one myself, you know, to answer some of the questions I might have. Uh, just to see, you know, if I'm if I'm thinking correctly about the probabilities of th- something happening or not. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting.
0: I quite like the it's a pretty famous example. I've had it before. The example of the like the monkeys. If you have like an infinite amount of monkeys, and you put them in front of a typewriter, it is sort of guaranteed that one of them will write the Odyssey because you have infinite monkeys. So there's infinite chances for them to press like a different key each time, and at some point it'll happen to be this perfect huge book and mm-hmm that's kind of like something that's hard to sort of grasp, but actually makes lots of sense.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's like the, yeah, I mean, we as humans have so many different kinds of biases that we, yeah, we tend to have difficulty grasping. This, yeah, yeah. You know, the fact that a monkey can, can you know, 100% replicate the Odyssey. Um, and one of the most striking examples that I will not quickly forget was the one of the, the letter that you got in your mailbox. And so the story is, you know, 1st of January, you open your mailbox and you get, you get a letter that says in, in this month, the stock market is going to go up. And, and as so you say, okay, you discard the letter. And just out of curiosity, at the end of the month, you look at the stock market and you see that it went up. And the first of February, you get a letter that says uh, this month, the stock market is going to go down. And you say, well, okay, interesting. But you discard the letter. You don't, you don't pay too much attention to it. But at the end of the month, um, you look at the stock market, and it effectively went down. Um, and this continues for a few months. You know, uh, uh, March, April, May. The predictions of the letter that you receive in the first of the month are always correct. And then there is August, and you know the letters were always correct. And in August, you get a letter saying uh, you should invest in this new hedge fund because it's going to make you. Uh, it, it's going to give you a, a hundred x return over the next month. And so you're like, okay, I'm definitely doing this because it was always right. And the moment you send your money to the hedge fund, it's gone and you lose everything. And apparently this is actually an existing scam where uh, people or one person, they send out 10, 000, tens of thousands of, of, of letters, one half saying that the stock market is going to up and the other half saying that it's going to go down. And whatever the stock market does um, to those halves, so the one he was corrected, he, sends this, well, he splits them up and continues doing that until August, where he remains with a certain number of correct guesses. And yeah, I mean, it's a scam that works. And this is this is exactly how the law, the law of large numbers works.
0: Just to clarify, so basically what you're saying is that each month, half of the people get the wrong letter and they don't get another letter. And so he just splits the one that got the right letter into half again and sends them two different letters the next month. And so you just go down this tree of, of success. And if you're always the one that happens to be in the right thing, you just get more letters because you start with such a big audience come down to you. But it seems like you're in this unique place where like this guy's just always correct. It just comes from like statistics of lots of people.
1: Exactly. And I, I, this is the same concepts he uses to think about successful traders or successful fund managers, mm. where if, if a fund manager has a 50% chance of making money and a 50% chance of losing money, if you start with a hundred thousand Uh, fund managers after 15 years, it makes sense that still a number of them would have been correct each year while it would be, and and, and people don't really see that, but it's going to be those fund managers out of pure luck that come to your door and ask you for money and show their exquisite track record of never being wrong. But people don't think about all the 999 uh, or 99,000 others that have failed and trying to do the same thing. And so whenever someone comes To or someone talks about, you know, the the success that they had and their track record, the author immediately always thinks about okay, but how many people have tried and how strong is the the survivor bias in this game? Very useful. What else interesting did I learn? Ah, yeah, One, one is for example, that a bit of good luck is actually self reinforcing. Is in business, for example, let's say that you have you made one very successful business decision out of pure luck because you make hundreds of business decisions each year and if one of them becomes very successful and, and and hindsight was a very good decision you actually because of the success you keep like your composure changes you you puff yourself up let's say you're going to you're going to appear taller you're going to keep your chin up your chest up which is actually going to help you in other parts of the business when you're talking to people you're going to be you're going to appear more confident it's going to be easier for you to get good deals and which might you know keep self-reinforcing, make better decisions. Well, be luckier in the decision that you make.
0: You just got more opportunities because you're kind of constantly putting yourself out there. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a big thing. Yeah. That one. And then I think um, sort of the stoicism mindset of expecting things to be bad sometimes and not worrying about it kind of being lost and just being able to just carry on and not yeah, it's sort of like a whole because if the world doesn't matter so much, you can kind of just enjoy the randomness that comes at you, rather than as in not being buffeted around by what happens in the world, and kind of being a bit more in your own emotions rather than what happens to you. Deciding how you feel is something that I kind of got from it. Because of like the world is random and it does stuff, and it's not always your fault. And so if you are more stoic mm-hmm. about it, you are going to continue to be happy. And like you said, if you sort of can force yourself to be more confident, you will be more successful but if you can be stoic about like your losses, then it doesn't matter because you carry on putting yourself out there to, to, reach success. Whereas if you're not, then like the opposite of what you just said is, that if you do have losses and that, that will just lead to more losses if you aren't stoic kind of thing. So I felt like mm-hmm. there was a whole mm-hmm. stoic side to the book as well, which um, is always useful as we know. Everyone loves some stoicism.
1: I'm, although I don't know much about it, the concepts that I hear about stoicism always appeal to me very much although I don't really use them in, in daily life, but it's true. I think it's useful to rationalize some things and don't think that everything, every good decision that you make in hindsight was because of skill. Mm. Uh, and it's good to realize that luck plays a factor in in, in in most of your decisions and don't don't underestimate the role of luck. S- some of the other interesting concepts was the fact that old ideas are better than new. So, Old ideas have been around for a long time. <clears throat> so a lot of people have tried to disprove these ideas. And this isn't the case for new ideas. And so new ideas can sound revolutionary and super special. And, you know, history repeats itself, but this time it's different. But he says that it's always safer to um, to, to put more trust in old ideas than in new. Because the new haven't had the chance to be disproven yet just mm-hmm. by the by time. And for me, why is this so relevant is that I'm personally a big fan of cryptocurrencies. And so in a basis, I believe that there's a problem in our financial system and especially our monetary system. And I'm a big believer in assets that don't lose their value over time. Two of the most prominent right now are gold and Bitcoin. And so I'm a big fan of Bitcoin because I believe it's like the, the digital gold that, you know, there's a finite supply, and it has all the positive characteristics of digital money that gold doesn't. But reading this book, it's true that it puts stuff into context, and it reminds me that you know, Bitcoin is very new, and it hasn't had the time to prove itself, and gold has been around for you know, thousands of years, and perhaps it would be wise to consider gold as a, as a potential option to you know, hedge against um, inflation. Next to, to Bitcoin.
0: I think people do kind of worry a lot about it just being sort of digital money and the fact that there's just lots of different cryptocurrencies and it's like sure one's in finite supply, but then maybe it's the other one that works kind of thing. But then
1: I mean in the end the the fact that it's new also increases the potential positive return. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I mean Bitcoin hasn't proven itself, which actually reduces the price. So it's it's the expected return is is, is, is lower. But I'm a big believer, so I'm I'm full on bullish. Mm. So yeah. Uh, let, let, let's see how correct I am, and if randomness has has something to say about
0: that. Yeah, well, certainly it it pays to at least play the game a little bit, as in the risk versus reward ratio is definitely in the favor of the reward. But it depends on like where you gauge that, and it's not worth the risk of putting all your money into a kind of thing because that would be silly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But not putting any money is missing an opportunity.
1: One last point I'd like to make is that the author talks about emotions and how emotions skew our perception of randomness and risks. One of the examples he gives is that um, if you go to the airport and you ask people how interested they would be in buying insurance for the case where their plane uh, crashes because of terrorists, they'll, be, they'll give you a certain amount of money that they would be willing to pay for that insurance. Mm-hmm. And if you go to people and ask them how much they'd be willing to pay to get insured for any type of crash, they'd actually be willing to pay less than in the previous case. Although having a plane crash because of terrorism is actually a subset of having a plane crashes. And so the odds of having a plane crash in general are way higher than that of a plane crashing in in the case of terrorism. And so people think or calculate probabilities with their emotions. um, And that is...
0: It not just emotions it's also perception so it's in the same way that that's why it's so valuable to tell a story when you give an example as opposed to just talking about something because you can see the stories and people know the terrorists exist and they can they can see that happening on the plane and there's the exact same example in i think maybe in this book as well but it's in a few other places of if you tell people the likelihood you ask them to guess the likelihood of like a major flooding and tornado in after an hour or like an earthquake in california Causing a flood, like what's the likelihood of that happening this year? And they'll give you like twenty percent or something. Whereas if you ask them just um, an act of God in the USA, which covers any earthquake, okay, <laughs> like they'll give you more like sort of five percent. And you're like, what? Because of it's less than the very specific thing, but they can like they can picture the earthquake happening, causing a flood in California because that's something that's happened before. And they're like, well, this is definitely a thing. And it's like a story that makes sense to them. Whereas you're just kind of talking about like a vague thing that they, they don't know which one's specific. And so you, you give much more higher chance to these things that you can kind of picture, which is annoying when you allude to things without telling a proper story. And why you don't think about all the stuff that could happen when you just think of like a few examples of what's in your imagination. Well, when you think about what might happen in the future, you only think about things you know, like the stories that you know of. You don't think about the insane amount of possibilities of other stuff, which is why you don't think about the future properly. Mm-hmm. But yes, we're just really bad at calculating probability.
1: Yeah, and talking about that, the visualization and the emotion, that's where Talib actually has a lot to say about the media and journalism, mm-hmm. where the goal of media is not to inform us. Yeah, it's the- it is to have us read something and to catch eyeballs, basically, which is why they are mostly using you know, fear or, in general, emotions to sell something or to tell stories. And so <laughs> the author actually says that you can gain an informational advantage by discarding the news yeah <laughs> so you're objectively better off by not looking at the news um because everything is brought with so much emotion and and you know you you will be biased by what they're saying and so in order to avoid that bias uh just don't look at it
0: it's definitely something that helps as you if you travel a lot and you go to a lot of places that you hear about in the news and you see things that are sort of quite different to what you expect and what you're reading about at the same time you're like wait why is this news so different to what's actually going on, kind of thing? And you're like the world mm-hmm. is not as bad as you think it is. Um, certainly reading some books like now I'm not gonna remember the name at all. Hans Rosling. He's got a good book about the world. Factfulness. Yeah, his book about
1: Ah, that's factfulness, a good book, yeah,
0: yeah. About kind of like actual statistics mm-hmm. of the way the world's improving and different things that's going on everywhere. And they're like, Yeah, the world is not half as mm-hmm. bad as you think it is. And
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: it's brilliantly useful just to sort of have those kind of concepts in your brain battling against all the crap news that sort of hits you. One last thing that I don't want, want to say that kind of relates to this about the probability and like us not working it out properly is like statistics. We don't gauge them properly. So if you sort of hear on the weather report, that like there's a 20% chance of rain, you kind of think it's just not going to rain, but that means that one in five days, it's going to rain. So if you have like the next five days that you're going to work and it says it's a, it's a 20% chance of rain each day, that means you should take an umbrella every day because one of those days you're going to get wet, basically. <laughs> and so, but you kind of think that it means that like, it's really just not going to rain much. And you don't quite get that he's right. As in, if you go out on your day and it rains, when they said 20% chance, the weatherman is right because of it. This is the one in five day where it's going to rain. Whereas you think that he's completely wrong if he's sort of said that. And you kind of don't quite mm-hmm. get the weight of these statistics and what it really means. And, you know, if you mm-hmm. given a chance for like a surgery with like a 5% chance of dying kind of thing, you're like, oh yeah, it's probably pretty safe or something. Or 95% chance of success. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. cool. I'm going to be fine. And like, <laughs> actually one in 20 people are going to die from that. And that's mm-hmm. kind of worrying. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think the useful thing about this book is not necessarily that it helps you in um, making decisions under, under uncertainty. uncertainty. So it doesn't help you in understanding probabilities better because I think we as humans are just in general bad at assessing probabilities and risks. But for me, my takeaway is that I should just realize that I'm bad at assessing probabilities and just take that into account whenever I'm making. Yeah, decisions. yeah. Cause
0: he talks about himself being like, okay, I'm still really terrible at this, but like I'm at least slightly conscious of how terrible I am and I can be a bit more aware of this. And I think that's really easy. Yeah.
1: What did you think about the, the author and the way he wrote the book, the way he thinks about himself?
0: I don't know. As in, he's clearly really smart, but then um, he sort of knows he's quite smart and talks about himself as being smart and better than other people. And I'm not sure that everyone's as dumb as he's saying they are, perhaps. Or I don't know, maybe. Yeah, as in, a lot of humans do want to attribute their success to these things. You're saying, like, I think he's just over overstating how stupid like some people who have been really successful are but maybe I'm just being fooled by randomness and <laughs> these people are all just completely nuts. Hard <laughs> to know. Mm-hmm.
1: For me, I, 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 I think he didn't come across as very like... No, he uh, doesn't seem
0: like he makes a lot of friends very um, easily.
1: No, no. It, I felt like some part of the book was like an attempt to write down his frustrations with like certain people who are being idolized. I mean, in the end, the book was for him not so much like a, like a way to teach people stuff. No. It's just him writing down his thoughts about randomness and how we are all fooled by it. So the premise of the book is not trying to teach anyone anything. It's more like him just writing down his thoughts yeah. on a certain subject, and you can notice that. So it's it's although the book is very smart and he's obviously very smart, it's it's not it's not like a handbook of teaching you how to think.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it could have gone into a much wider aspects as well in terms of when you think about how random everything is like the world that we happen to live in is so random that we reach this. And like, there could be so many different alternate realities of things that actually do work for humans. And like, there's a lot of cool, deep stuff you could go into with that, which you kind of just didn't mention at all. And okay, maybe it's, it's a book about, yeah, investing in this, this kind of stuff, but there was a lot of interesting things that you could have covered. Besides banking and, and investing and things.
1: But perhaps, perhaps he will, he will talk about those things in one of the next books
0: it's good to have a focus and maybe you know, perhaps he became more niche because of it was specific and like a lot of bankers, investors read it and it became like well-known in that area. It's actually, it's useful for other people. Whereas if it was just like a a vague book about everything, maybe no one would have been thinking it was for them. Who knows?
1: I think we'll, we'll, we'll have a better understanding or perhaps he's going to go more in depth into, into the other concepts in the next books, which we we will be reading in the following uh, weeks Mm -hmm. and we will be discussing in the following episodes. So we decided to complete his four books, which are first *Full by Randomness, which we just did, then The Black Swan, then The Bed of Prochristus, and then uh, Anti-Fragile and Skin in the Game. So it's five books. So over the next five episodes, we'll be uh, discussing those. Oh,
0: joy. (laughs) It's going to be great.
1: (laughs) Yay. Yeah, I mean, it's heavy. It's heavy. But uh, we'll manage to get through, I think. uh, Doing this for you guys. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> please enjoy this. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, in general, so uh, tell me, uh, what would be your score on the, on this book? I guess
0: six. I don't know it's it's a really good concept, but I've heard some of my favourite moments were concepts I've already read before, like the infinite monkeys and the the statistics of, like like the weather event, that kind of thing. I've already heard all that before. So so maybe he was the person that found this. It's it's hard to know when you just read things in the wrong order. (laughs) But I didn't feel like the biggest take-homes were stuff I hadn't heard before. And it's just a lot longer and denser than it needs to be to explain the things that you remember. So I felt like it could have been written in a much nicer way in that sense. So that's why I'm giving it a lower score. But if you do want, certainly if you're an investor, you should just read this book if you haven't, because yeah, you can do really stupid things and it's good to acknowledge that a lot of them are are bonkers and yeah, it's very useful for that.
1: Yeah, agreed. I think uh, if you make any decisions based on randomness, this is a very interesting book to read. That being said, it could definitely be half as long. And so a lot of the frustration that the author has for certain people, certain things, certain concepts don't really need to be in there to bring home the point that the book makes or at least that one that I take away so i'm also going to give it a 6 it's uh very interesting concepts mm. but could be condensed down more but yeah i mean if if you i, I would say it's 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 a very interesting read and and everything would everyone would derive some value from it because all the concepts are are useful in in daily life anyway so yeah all right so that's something you would like to add yeah,
0: i was just going to say in terms of our scoring system maybe we should write down our score each individually before we say it to see if we don't get affected So certainly if i say something like a nine and then you say a six i'm always like oh yeah maybe i meant like seven (laughs) or an eight whereas if i hear yours first I then like maybe come up to meet you a bit more so perhaps it's worth like getting a more accurate version of what your just pure thought was initially before um you've heard mine
1: it's a good point good point no it's true because i think if you didn't if you hadn't said six i would have said seven all right next time we're gonna write it down in our notes all right, I think uh, this concludes the episode. Next uh, episode, we're going to be discussing The Black Swan by the same author. Bear with us in <laughs> reading it. Speak soon.
0: Ciao.